Um, when we say the 500th anniversary, we mean the uh, 500th anniversary of October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. That is, there were things obviously leading up to the Reformation. Martin Luther did not exist in a vacuum, um, but that is the day that most historians attribute as the start of the Reformation. And out of that time, they came up with what is known as the Five Solas. It was reactionary against all of the things that were added to the faith that were unbiblical. So they started to look at things like sola scriptura. It's scripture alone, not scripture plus the words of man. Sola Christus, that we believe in Christ alone for our salvation, not Christ plus our works or anything that we can attribute to his atonement. Um, and we're going to be looking at each of those, but for the first time in a long time, I have a week where I get to do just a one-off message, and I'm really excited about it. Before we get into the doctrines of grace, I wanted to talk about our practical understanding of grace. There is no topic that I would rather talk about more than grace, so I hope that you enjoy the ride this morning. In Reformed circles, we love to talk about grace and talk about the sovereign grace that leads us to a place of repentance, regeneration, and to our great salvation. And, and why not talk about those things, right? They're outstanding topics to talk about. What could be more beautiful to set our minds upon than God's sovereign grace in choosing and electing rebellious sinners, calling them to himself, and then allowing us to spend all of eternity exploring the riches of his glorious grace and mercy. I'm reading a book about grace that was written by a very solid author. Um, it was highly recommended by other solid authors whose names I usually look for on the back of books that I read, and they all firmly hold the doctrines of grace. This author was even featured in a series of interviews on the Gospel Coalition, if you're familiar with that, to talk about this book and to discuss this radical, scandalous understanding of grace. And at first, as I read this book, um, as somebody that's a grace junkie, I was just hooked right away. And as I got into it, he used a term that completely caught me off guard and kind of set into motion the thoughts that led to this message that we're going to look at out of the scriptures today. He said, I want to discuss grace in very practical terms. I'm not here to discuss merely theological grace. And at first I was taken back by the term merely theological grace. It sounded to me as if he was making light of the grace that ransomed us from darkness and transferred us into this kingdom of his marvelous right. But as I read on, I realized he was not cheapening or softening or lessening grace whatsoever. What he was doing was pointing out the fact that Sometimes the people that are most theologically astute in their articulations of the doctrines of grace, but they stop at the doorway of grace rather than mining the depths of the riches of grace and that life-changing attribute of our God. The author's premise was that we are wonderful in understanding all of these biblical passages about it and expounding them, but we're terrible when it comes to living it out and even more so in receiving grace. He attributed this to alarming rate of burnout amongst Christians. They're not being refueled by grace, so therefore they're burning out at rates 
that have never been heard of in the history of the church. You can't even find the word burnout in church literature before 1950. So when I talk about that it is speeding up at an alarming rate, now it is the topic of half the books that come out in Christendom, and we're going to have lots more on that in a little bit. And he shared his story about how he was a pastor of a large church. He was a sought-after speaker. He was a seminary professor. And all of the churches that he spoke at and worked at and the seminaries that he was employed at were renowned for being beacons of grace. Yet he was living this lifestyle where he's just so stressed out and burned out and numbed the grace that he didn't realize the impact that the stress was having on his body. And he ended up in the hospital with blood clots and lungs that almost killed him as a result of stress. And as he lay there in the hospital, he realized that he would regularly tell others about grace, but he did not know the first thing about receiving or being refueled by grace. So he went on to write about five non-merely theological aspects of grace. He wrote about the motivating power of grace, the moderating power of grace, the multiplying power of grace, the releasing power of grace, and the receiving power of grace. He had to come to grips with the fact that he thought that he was in love with the theology of grace, that he was, but he was motivated by a theology of performance and not a theology of grace. He did not moderate his output because he felt that too much was dependent upon him. So rather than seeing that all that he does and has is because of grace. He didn't see God as being bigger than the sum total of his efforts because he failed to see the multiplying power of grace and how God takes the very little bit that we're actually able to contribute and multiplies our humble loaves and fishes. He was not able to let go of the things and turn off his brain ever because he felt like he always needed to be in control and he failed to understand the releasing power of grace. And ultimately, it came down to that he didn't really have a clue about receiving grace. Um, it reminded me of the words from one of my favorite poets, a man named Bob Dylan, where he talks about this book of poems that was handed it to me and every word rang true like it was written from me to you. And I pulled up in blue in case anybody wonders what song it's from. But man, I read those lyrics, I read those words and I was captivated and I found myself identifying with more than I would care to admit from this pulpit as if every page was written to me and I felt like others could probably identify as well. So today we're going to talk about how we receive grace and being a people who receive grace are now able to genuinely give grace to others. And our text will explain that quite a bit. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Timothy. It's also going to be projected up behind me. If you don't have one, there's Bibles in the seat pockets. If you don't own one, please take that as our gift to you. So as we get into chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 12. Paul begins to get into his testimony, and he gets into the reason that he received grace. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 12 through 16. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorant and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me 
with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. We'll be returning to those verses. But Paul begins this section by thanking God because God strengthened him to do that which he could have never done himself. I think we could say that for a lot of things, right? We could probably say that for everything. God's constantly strengthening us to be able to do things that we could never do ourselves. Sometimes he actually peels back the curtain and he makes us aware of it, like Elisha with his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6. Other times, he's sustaining us in ways, and we're not even slightly aware of it, yet he's upholding us by his grace. But in this context, what Paul is thanking God for is strengthening him to be able to make changes that he could have never been able to make on his own and taking him from being a man who is fighting against God and shaking his fist against God and turning him into a man who is now a vessel of God and useful for the master's service. Look again at 12 and 13. I thank him. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he judged me faithful. That's supposed to be ironic there because he's going to go on about how unfaithful he was. God didn't judge him faithful. God judged Christ faithful who atoned for his sin. He judged him faithful, appointing me to service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, I received mercy that acted ignorantly in unbelief. So he's thanking him from being this man that was fighting him that's now useful to the Lord, even though in his own words he was formerly a blasphemer. A blasphemer is somebody who is speaking the opposite of gospel truth, that is leading people intentionally astray from the gospel. He also says that he was a persecutor of other Christians. And if you read through the book of Acts, Jesus actually took that very personally to the point where he uses a personification of Paul's persecution of the church and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he saw the persecution of other Christians as persecution being done unto himself, even though he was an insolent opponent. That means, you know what insolent opponent means? It's not really terminology we use that often. It means somebody who cannot be reasoned with, somebody who's made up their mind that they're going to be found in opposition to anything you say, and they will be hard-headed and unrelenting regardless of how logical the presentation of whatever you're trying to say to them is. Yet in all of this, Paul's premise here is that God's grace won over Paul's hard and stubborn heart. In Paul's words, it says grace overflowed to him in spite of himself. I want you to remember that. That's going to be key to understanding this passage and this message. Grace overflowed to him in spite of himself. He says it again if you look at the second half of verse 13. He says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying's trustworthy 
and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost, in spite of myself. But I received mercy for this, that in me, as foremost, again, in spite of myself, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. You couldn't give better proof than what Paul just did, that grace is something that we can never possibly earn. And that not only that, it's a gift that we're only able to receive in spite of ourselves. Not because of ourselves. I'm going to go on to this more later. But if we know that this is true of our salvation, then why do we think that God's methods of grace change after he brought you who are an enemy into his family and made you his child? Just about every Christian I meet understands that God saved them in spite of themselves, not because of themselves. If they don't understand that, I would doubt that they truly even understand the gospel of grace and that they're sincerely a Christian. If they were all like, God looked down and saw that I'm as awesome as I think I am, so therefore he saved me because he agreed that I'm as awesome as I think I am we would believe that they didn't understand grace. They didn't understand the gospel. But people don't believe that. I've never heard a testimony get started out like that. So why, after becoming Christians, do people work so hard at receiving something that God gave you freely when you were his enemy? I really want you to spin your minds around that. Why, after becoming Christians... Do people work so hard to receive something that God gave you for free when you were his enemy? And that's sort of Paul's whole point in this text. According to these verses, here are the reasons. If you want to know why he was given grace, I'm going to break them down to you. The reasons that Paul gives as to why God made him an object of his grace and his mercy. God gave him grace because he was ignorant. That doesn't sound like a whole lot to be accredited to your account. God gave him grace because he was steeped in unbelief. Because Paul was the worst of the worst when it came to sinners is the reason that God gave him grace. And my absolute favorite reason is in verse 16. So good that it bears worth reading again. But I received mercy for this reason that in me... As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. I'm going to try to make it through this without blubbering, but this point just absolutely crushed me in my devotions this week. What Paul is basically saying is the reason God gave me so much grace is because he knows that I require so much patience and everybody else can see it too. I am so in need of grace and mercy that by being patient to me God was really demonstrating something to the rest of the world about the way that he operates that if he can be patient with me he can literally be patient with anybody and by showing me grace and patience that it's an example of all who would come after me that God is able to be patient and be gracious. Let me take the theological terminology off this and just strip it away for a second. What Paul is saying is that he is aware of what a nudge he is. 
And every single day that God doesn't wipe him off the face of this spinning ball is just another day that God is demonstrating that he is so much more gracious and patient than we could have ever imagined or given him credit for. And I want you guys to keep something in mind here. If we look at the timeline, Paul is talking about these things after his conversion now. I hear plenty of testimonies that go something like this. And I was such a bad dude before I came to Christ that I can't believe that Jesus didn't just take me out. That's too high of a view of yourself now. That's not what Paul's saying here at all. He's saying that every day that I get to wake up is another day that God is demonstrating his perfect patience to me. Every day that there's breath in my lungs that I'm able to start off my day with saying thank you Lord is another demonstration of his perfect patience to me. He's saying that God continues to be patient to him because he is demonstrating his patience through him. So to everybody who's ever the words ever uttered the words God could never love someone like me. God could never forgive someone like me. God could never forgive that thing that he knows that I've done. Why would God ever want something to do with someone like me? Paul is saying that God saved him to show you that his amazing grace is truly real and that if God could want something to do with somebody like him, he most certainly wants something to do with somebody like you. If God could give grace to Paul, he could give grace to anybody. And more specifically, if God could give grace to Paul, he can give grace to you who are sitting in this room. And because I'm building up all of this giving grace to Paul, I want you guys to understand something that's really just really important to get this concept theologically. It's not like it was difficult for God to give grace to Paul. So Paul's using himself as the nth example, and even as the nth example, it still was not difficult for God to give grace to Paul. It's not like he looks at someone and says, you know what, she's really simple, so I just need a little sprinkling of grace on her to be able to win her heart, so take a little bit of grace. But that guy, I've got to dig extra deep into my bag of special grace to be able to give him some, just as a little mini tangent. If you study this passage in its context, do you know what the very next passage is about? It's about praying for our world leaders. So, very brief tangent, but because this disgusts me so much, I'm going to go into it. For those of you who tend to look at people on the opposite side of the political aisle and see them as beyond God's reach, just take a quick glance at the fact that the command to pray for your leaders is wrapped up in the context of God being big enough to grab a hold of anybody's heart, no matter how insolent of an opponent they are. God's words, not my interpretation. So I have news for you in case you have an underdeveloped view of your own depths of depravity. You require just as much to save as Donald Trump, Kim Jong-un, Barack Obama, Pol Pot, or anybody else that he would choose to set his sights on and sovereignly elect them for his salvation. That's Paul's point. If he could show grace to a sinner like him, he can show grace to anybody. The only thing that was difficult about grace was the means that made it possible. It required the crushing of God's own son so that he could pour out the fullness of his wrath upon his son so that instead of wrath, 
you might be able to receive grace. That was the difficult part. And you know what's the greatest thing about the difficult part? When it was over, he uttered three little words. What were they? It's finished. He's finished with the difficult part. So now, do you know where the difficulty resides? It resides in convincing hard, prideful hearts that you're actually in need of the gift that he wants to freely give you. But he's done everything on his end to pave the way. So Paul does not, um, well, he does the only thing that you could do when you receive such good news. He worships. I hope this informs our worship here today. Listen to verse 17. It says, Now to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's an early Christian song, most commentators believe. They're basically saying, when I look at this grace that came to me, all I can do is erupt in song. What else can I do? It's that amazing. I can't just sit here and theologize about this. I can't sit here and be unmoved about this. It's making me break into song because grace has broken through this part and it makes me want to sing. It's just his way of saying, isn't grace just that completely awesome that mere words just don't do it? I need to sing from the depths of my heart. He says something really awesome in here. He says that God both receives and demonstrates his glory when he shows us grace. So that just makes me want to receive more grace. Look at the way that that transaction works. Any math majors in here? God receives and gets glory each time he gives you grace, which means that every time he gives you grace, he gets more glory. I love getting grace. Do you love getting grace? So when you love getting grace and you receive grace, you're able to actually glorify the Lord by just receiving the gift of grace that he's given to you. It's a win-win here and in the cosmic realm. Grace is amazing. Out of all the reasons that this passage gives for God giving grace to understand for to undeserving sinners, it really comes down to three main reasons. God gives us grace because he's gracious. It's in his very nature of who he is. God gave us grace so that we would be madly in love with him. That's the outcome of what you see here in this passage. I've, I've actually heard people try to caution others about focusing too much on grace. I could give you books and show you where people say that. I just want to ask you like a sober question. What are you cautioning people for? What's the worst thing that can happen? that you realize increasingly how little you had to do with any of this, and God gets bigger and you get smaller? To me, that doesn't really seem like things that you would want to caution people over. It seems like the only outcome is a deeper love for our Savior. And grace is amazing. Thirdly, God gives us grace because giving grace gives God glory. That is a tongue twister that I want you all to say. God gives grace, because giving grace gives God glory. You don't really need to say it, but it's, it is fun to say. If everything we have is because of grace, then there isn't any place for boasting, is there? If there's no room for boasting, then guess what? There's no room to glorify myself or to receive glory from anyone else. That's the same truth that Paul was hitting on in 1 Corinthians 4-7 when he said something 
along the lines of, if everything we have is because of grace, why do you go on boasting about it as if you didn't receive it? It would be like if I gave you a million dollars, you were just standing outside and you were broke and I handed you a million dollars and then somebody comes up to you and says, wow, you must be industrious and hardworking to have been able to receive that much money that quickly. And instead of saying, well, no, somebody just handed it to me as a gift. I was actually trying to run the opposite way of this guy with the big bag of money, but he chased me down and he made me take it. If we want to really take the illustration of grace and take it to its logical conclusions from Luke chapter 15. And yes, I am so awesome at it that I'm going to write a book about seven steps about how you can receive a million dollars just like I did. You would look at that person with contempt saying you did nothing. What are you even bragging about? The only thing you did was receive it. Why are you boasting? Or to use a more real life example, this past week we kicked off the homeschool co-op and it was far beyond anything that I could have ever expected. As I looked out at these children that were filling this building and I looked out at all the leaders in the church that were taking time to disciple these children and invest in their futures, I was moved to tears on more than one occasion. But at no point did I look at that and say, wow, how awesome am I? How awesome are those group of ladies that put this together and the sum total of all of their talents? It was, God, you're so incredibly gracious to us. Because if it wasn't for you, we would have fallen flat on our face. And this would have been terrible. But you came and you just blew your ruach into this. And you empowered this with your grace. And it went into a time of glorifying him for his grace. And a time of pleasure. And a time of enjoyment. Because that's what happens when grace shows up on the scene. Out of all the amazing things Paul has to say about grace in this text, nowhere, get this Christian, I'm getting to the main point that I want to leave you with today. I've been talking a lot about grace. It was kind of window dressing to where I want to get to. Out of all the amazing things that he said about grace, nowhere does it say that he received grace so that he could spend the rest of his life trying to pay it back. If I'm reading this text correctly, the transaction is not... God, you gave me grace, and now let me spend the rest of my life trying to work off some sort of indebtedness. It's God gives you grace so that he can continue to lavish upon you more of this grace. And according to Ephesians 1, if you want to go to parallel passages to make sure that what I'm saying is accurate, he gives you grace and then lavishes you with grace because it's part of his eternal plan so that you could spend the rest of eternity mining the depths of the riches of his glorious grace. That's why I hate with a passion the line to the hymn, Come Thou Fount, where he says, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. That concept is so foreign to the heart of grace. It takes grace and turns it into a debtor, and then it's not grace any longer. If grace makes you a debtor, do math with me, guys. If grace makes you a debtor, it's not grace it's a wage. It's no longer a free gift. 
The term debt, I looked it up in the dictionary just to make sure that I'm not working off of different definitions. The term debt, by definition, means something that you are supposed to repay or pay back. Grace, by definition, is something that can never be repaid or paid back. The whole reason that we need grace is because there is no way that we could ever repay that debt. And it's amazing how many times when I've mentioned that song, just because you've sung it since you were a kid doesn't make it theologically accurate, folks. Every time I've said this, I have people come up to me and say, but no, 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 this is the real ethos of what he was trying to say. Look, it's a beautiful hymn, and if you treasure it, praise God, but that line is still wrong. And if you want a little bit of just historical context, just in case you want to come and argue that, it was written by an 18th century Methodist, and 18th century Methodism is not the place that is known for preaching free and radical grace. I don't even know why people get so uptight about that. It was written by a flaming moralist. So, oh to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. No. Because of grace, I'm not a debtor. And my heart's constrained to rejoice and worship and gratitude. Based on what I've observed in Christianity, I think that just as interesting as what this passage says is what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that he saved me so that I could spend the rest of my life getting burned out trying to follow Jesus. You would think that it says that, right? Because I've met so many people that understand, like, oh, man, it was this sovereign grace that just grabbed me by the back of the neck and was able to place my feet on a solid rock. But, man, I am just burned out from all this Jesus following. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't say that he saved me so that He could save me from my sins so that I could spend the rest of my life shoving my face in my sin and making myself wallow in it either. It amazes me that some of the people who are most bold about the doctrines of grace are the ones that are constantly preaching about staring at their sin and trying to get others to stare at their sin. To me, what that speaks of is that pastor has an insecurity about grace so therefore he's trying to pass along that insecurity to you he didn't give you grace so that you could spend the rest of your life moaning about how unworthy you are about grace that's not even being honest with our text Paul clearly states that he's the foremost of sinners. He covers that in verses 15 and 16. But guess what? He doesn't stay there. He uses that as the dark backdrop like you would see a diamond salesman do when they put out that black felt so you could see just how twinkling and gleaming the beauty and the radiance of that diamond is. He only uses that sin as the backdrop so he could say, wow, if that sin abounded, how much more did grace abound all the more? Wow, isn't grace beautiful? He didn't give it to us so you could be like some dog having your face rubbed in the mess that you made. But I see too many Christians who affirm the doctrines of grace who walk around like beaten puppies. It's amazing how often people need to qualify grace and say things like, look, that's great, grace, grace, grace. But you didn't give us grace so you can go on living a sinful and holy life. Look at our text again. Paul feels no need to qualify any of this. He doesn't say, I was the foremost of sinners and grace saved me, 
but I better be careful about how much I emphasize this grace because I don't want to fall back into being the foremost of sinners anymore. He just talks about how grace freed him from that old way of life. And now grace continues to free him to live a holy Christian life. People who feel like they need to qualify grace in order to make sure that we don't sin, first of all, you are right in line with the same error that Rome had when they tried to murder Luther because they said if this crazy monk keeps preaching this free and radical grace, the whole system falls apart. So if you feel like you need to qualify it, I just want you to know what company you're in historically. But, but Romans 6.1, doesn't that qualify grace? Shall we continue sinning so that grace may abound? No, that doesn't qualify grace. If you think that that's what Paul's doing there, you need to go back and do a proper exegesis of Romans chapter 5 and 6 because it shows that you don't even understand where he's trying to take you in Romans 6. He's not qualifying grace. He's making fun of somebody that would make that argument. Paul is woefully sarcastic, in case you didn't want to know that. That's what, it, it just doesn't come across from the Greek into our English when he's saying, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? No, man, never be. It's like, what? Are you nuts? Are you really asking that stupid question? That's what the Greek is. Sort of. That's my paraphrase of it. Grace, you, you know that he can't be saying that because check out how cool this is. Grace freed you from that old man. So his whole point after those verses, if you get into verses 3 through 11, is if he killed the old man, how could you go back to being the old man to begin with? Because he was buried and dead, and grace took care of that transaction. Grace doesn't give license. It motivates us to holiness and to live out a Christian life from being in the very presence of God because in his presence we find more grace and in his presence where we find more grace is where true biblical motivation for holiness really kicks in. Amen? Of course you're not worthy. That's what made it grace to begin with. You've got to go around moaning about how unworthy you are then it shows that you probably didn't understand what grace was. He didn't give you grace so that you could spend every waking hour staring at your sin. Grace frees us from that. I've never met somebody who got holy by staring at the sum total of their unholiness. I used to run an accountability group for men in Bible college who used to struggle with sexual addiction and all they would want to do is come together and st talk about, ah, I stared at this this week and I had these thoughts this week and these thoughts this week and after six months of just hearing the same thing I just exploded and I was like, do you ever talk about Jesus? Do you wonder why you're still stuck in this when the only thing you do is sin so that you can come together and talk about your sin and then we could sin some more when we come together and we talk about our sin? Where is there the room to talk about the Savior who freed us from our sin? Looking at Christ makes you holy, not looking at the muck and the mire that he pulled you from. Christians, stop living like you've got to pay back grace. If grace could be paid back, it wouldn't be grace. It would be a loan. If grace could be earned, it wouldn't be grace. It would be a wage. And according to Romans 3, there's only one wage that you've earned. And it's a dirt nap. 
That's the only wage that we've earned is death. But the grace of God appeared and gave us life. Brothers and sisters, we are not debtors. We're recipients. Can you leave here with that in your mind? If nothing else, we are not debtors. We are recipients of this beautiful thing called grace. The only thing that you contributed to grace was the sin that made it possible. Then Paul charged Timothy, and this is what we'll wrap up with, as a man who has received grace to go and be a vessel of grace to others. Verses 18 and 19, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, in the charge of this fullness of what I was just lavished upon. Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by you may wage the good warfare, holding a faith, and a good conscience by rejecting this some have made shipwreck of their faith as people who have been given grace we are now free to be able to give grace but this is where people get goofy brothers and sisters i'm convinced that this is where the root of all burnout stems from i don't think that people know how to receive grace and so since our grace receptors are so polluted then we don't know how to give grace without it coming out weird. Let me show you what I mean. I'll give you a couple of examples to prove it. One good way to be able to show how you are at receiving grace, if you want a litmus test so that you can leave here with and say, hey, maybe I'm as jacked up as the pastor is, and I need to be able to take these words to heart. A good way to see how you are at receiving grace is how are you at taking a Sabbath rest. If you can never shut it off because you think that everything depends on you to keep the plates spinning in the air, then you don't really believe that things run on grace, do you? You can say that you believe in grace, but functionally you're showing that you believe that things are more sustained by your ability to be able to sustain them rather than being dependent upon grace. Look, God gave us grace as God gave us a Sabbath as a grace. He also gave it to put his grace on display and show you, I can accomplish all of this without you. Give me one day a week to show just how unnecessary you are to this whole process. And while I still be God of the universe, even though you're not the one upholding my mighty right hand. The Sabbath is supposed to be a weekly parable on grace. Also, I need to say this, grace is not reciprocal. If you're reluctant to receive grace, if you've tuned out, I want you to tune back in with me here for a moment because I think some people might need to hear this. If you're reluctant to receive grace from somebody because you're wondering, if I say yes to this, what's it going to cost me on the back end? You have some holes in your theology of grace. Honestly, have you ever had that thought? Like, man, I don't want to have them have my kids over for a play date because if they do, then I'm going to be expected to have their kids over for a play date, and I'm just burned, and if I have to do one more thing, I'm just going to crumble into a pile on the floor. That's not grace. That's reciprocity. And it's an exhausting way to live and think and do your life. If this person does something for me, now I am in turn obligated to go and do for them. If you think like that, exposes that you have some holes in your functional doctrines of grace, and you might want to go back and rethink whether you get grace as well as you think you do. 
and it works the other way around too. If you keep a scorecard of, I had done this for them. So you'd think that by now they could have done something for me. You know, they could have shown up with some kind of thank you already. You might want to think through your theology of grace. That ain't grace fo either, folks. It's reciprocity, and it's ugly, and it will wear you out, and it will suck every ounce of grace that you have out of your life. I promise you, I, I want to just look you in the depths of your souls and say this as soberly as I possibly can. I promise that if you live that way, it will suck every ounce of grace out of your life and you will wake up one day and say when did I become such a graceless person if people got this it could change everything people could serve one another without expectation you could receive service from others just as an extension of God's grace in your life marriages could be saved those fights that happen because, hey, I gave in first last time, and I humbled myself the last time that we argued, so I'm just going to sit here and be passive-aggressive to you to show you that it's your turn to be able to apologize. That stuff wouldn't happen, because that's not grace. Grace doesn't keep a scorecard. Once the scorecard comes into the equation, grace ceases to be grace. If people set their minds to getting this, I promise it would start a grace revolution in your life, in your marriage, in this church and it would change the way that we interact with God as well we'd be able to just enjoy the pleasures that come from him without in feeling like we are in any way indebted or have to repay him we could just receive grace and be refreshed by grace and then we could literally serve out of joy and thankfulness instead of any sense of indebtedness as grace is way too awesome to be reciprocal Paul found grace according to 1st Timothy so that God could put his grace on display to others who are in need of grace you've received grace so that God might through you demonstrate that he's gracious to people who need to receive grace and lastly grace is not a one-time transaction the very act of receiving grace is an admonition that you are a needy person by nature and only grace will satisfy that need and as we live this Christian life that we've entered to, we are needy to be upheld by the same fuel that was put in the car to start the keys to begin with. Because when you drive the car off the lot, the right gas is in the tank, but then if you run the car on fumes, when you get off the lot, guess what happens? Eventually it stalls out, and you hit a wall, that devoid of grace wall. And brothers and sisters, if you have felt that burnout as a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. So every once in a while, it's good to hear, or in my case, to preach a message that says, let's reset and remind ourselves that the gas that made the car go is the only fuel that's going to keep it on the road. So a couple of application questions, just to make sure you're getting it. Do you live with an understanding that grace that got you in the door is the same grace that you need to sustain you every day? I need thee how I need thee, Every hour, I need thee. Are you afraid of just how radical grace is, and does that come out by a need to qualify it? A practical diagnostic, are you being refilled by grace, or do you find that your cup is constantly running dry rather than running over? 
Are you, able, are you able to enjoy grace that comes from God's hand, not as a debtor, but as a recipient? Are your relationships fueled by grace or reciprocity? Real question, man. Again, do they refresh you or do your relationships wear you out? Lack of grace leads to osteoporosis and weary bones. Are you able to demonstrate a practical theology of grace by releasing things and teaching yourself to trust in his releasing grace and then refilled by his sustaining grace as he comes to you and the person of Christ through refilling grace? And when you get that, it kind of makes you say something like this. Now to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Ask the uh, worship team to come up. I'm going to partake of communion. The way that this is going to go is I'm going to pray in a moment. Thank the Lord for his grace that was demonstrated in abundance. And with that invitation, if you trusted Christ as your